We're looking this morning as we return to Luke 2 and this little brief paragraph that tells us some important things about a man named Simeon, how he too was positioned by God to be a, a voice of proclamation, a voice that would proclaim for all the ages the good news of this one who was born. This is part of our series on Advent faith, and it really began a few weeks ago with a look from uh, a passage that we don't typically think of as a Christmas passage, but Genesis 4, and uh, the Advent faith of Eve, who had been given the promise that a son born to her would in fact reverse the curse that had come upon the world through her sin and Adam's. And she set, as it were, right at the outset of history, this expectation that there would be one who would come. And she looked longingly, eagerly. It didn't come in her lifetime. As a matter of fact, it was at least 4,000 years of human history that elapsed from that moment when God gave the promise to Eve until we come to uh, the, the nativity. And the record of Luke tells us, and we're more familiar with the angels appearing to the shepherds on the hillside out, uh, or the hills outside Bethlehem, we're less familiar, perhaps, with the, the little portion of Scripture in front of us in Luke 2, where a man named Simeon is also privileged to see the Christ child. We met him last week at a point in his life when he was really suspended between two different uh, stressors. There was the present distress of the Roman occupation, and then what we noted very briefly as the vile legalism of Israel's religious system and his pending death. The way the text reads, it seems to indicate that he's probably an older man at this point, but he had been given a promise. And in the middle of these two extremes, Simeon was waiting for the Messiah to appear, and then he did. And he was led by the Spirit into the temple on this particular day, and we believe this was 40 days or 41 days, depending on how you measure it, after the birth of Christ, when Mary and Joseph bring the Christ child in the temple, they're going to go through the purification process and the dedication, and there is Simeon, and he takes the Christ child in his arms, and he says, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. And that idea of peace is intriguing to us, and it ought to be so that a man whose immediate circumstances haven't changed, you know, Herod's not packing up the Roman occupation and saying, we're sorry what we, for what we've done to the nation of Israel, and sorry for the heavy burden of taxes, and sorry for the imposition that we've been. We'll try to clean up our mess, return the country to you, and, and go back home. And none of the religious leaders who have fully taken advantage of the people, even extorting their hard-earned dollars through a sacrificial system so perverted that it doesn't look anything like what God ordained long before. Even they are not repenting and, and turning and changing. So the immediate circumstances that create that distress for this man haven't gone away, but in the middle of it, he experiences the deepest and most profound peace that any of us could ever know. You know, it just seems crazy, and I think is, is Simeon oblivious, you know, to the terrible things taking place around him. Clearly is not watching Tucker Ben Carlson each night to understand how Herod and the Romans are systematically dismantling the nation that he loves. What kind of fiscal policy are these local tax collectors promoting? I mean, he, like everybody else, was watching his taxes go up year by year. 
And who would want to even talk about what's happening in the temple precinct with those exchange rates and sacrificial inspections? It was a hard moment. But here he is, truly experiencing and speaking of peace. And we noted last week some really important things. At the center, the promise Christ has come. Because God fulfills his promises. And this is a man whose life was conformed to the word of God. The words righteous, devout, and waiting. That's an expectant faith. It's an active faith. He hasn't received fully the things that God has promised, but he's counting on them. He has ordered his life according to the word of God, not according to the circumstances around him. Number two, we saw that he was controlled by the spirit of God. Three times in this passage, it mentions specifically the work of the Spirit in this man's life. And then finally, the great comfort or consolation, as he's referred to in this passage, the consolation of Israel is Jesus himself, and that's what Simeon experiences. Now today we want to return to this passage, and so I'd like to read again, beginning in verse 22 through verse 35, but there is more powerful truth for us to just mine out of this passage uh, as we look at the, at the specific proclamation or prophecy that Simeon gives concerning this child. Luke 2, verse 22, you follow along, please, as I read. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Your word is alive and powerful. It has been honed to such sharpness that it is able to penetrate to the deepest places of our being, to where soul and spirit come together. This word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and we ask that on this day, in great grace and in great mercy, you would unsheathe this sword and that you would do that discerning, penetrating work so that we might be exposed as we are in the light of the glory of Christ and be transformed. Reveal our sin that we might repent of it and turn from it and experience the power of your forgiveness, the power of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Would you reveal to us what, what thoughts and motivations lie deep within us that all of it might be submitted to this great king, this child who is the light of the world, who is the glory of your people. And oh, how we pray, Spirit of God, that you would move in and out of these aisles and that you would move, more importantly, in and out of our hearts and do all your holy will. Oh, Lord God, would you please bring salvation where it is desperately needed? Would you bring peace to those whose hearts are so stirred by the difficult circumstances and, and the confusing situations they live in that they are desperate? Would you settle those who feel anxious and fearful on this day? And would you minister the great grace of this child so that we would know the things of which Simeon speaks and be changed by them? You are our God. You are our King. And there is no hope or salvation in any other being in the universe. So will you bless now for your sake for your glory, for our good, and for our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to verse 28 with me, if you will, please. And let's note again how Simeon is a man who is proclaiming the salvation of God. He is amazed that he is experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises. We noted this last week, but it's important for us, I think, to review again. God is a God who keeps his promises. We live in the in-between in the same way that Simeon lived so many years knowing the word of God but not being sure would he see it, would it happen in his lifetime and God gave him special revelation to say, uh, saying you will not die until you see the, the Lord's Christ. We noted last week what a privilege it was not just to see the Lord's Christ but to hold him in his arms. It's a reminder that God always does exceeding abundantly beyond what we ask or think. There's never disappointment when you put your faith in God's promises. But notice in verses 30 through 32 that he reveals to us or proclaims to us not only that God is keeping his promises, but that God is, and I'm using the term staging his salvation for all peoples. Now it's important to reach back to verse 26 and, and hold on to that little phrase, this is the Lord's Christ, that is Christ who is, and, and you know that that is a title to Jesus. It's not actually a name for him. Jesus Christ often get, those two words often are placed together, rightfully so. Jesus is his formal name, which means he saves us from our sins, or God saves us from our sins. But Christ is actually the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew title, Messiah. And, and when we read in this gospel that he is the Lord's Christ, that places a special emphasis. He is, he is God's chosen one, God's anointed one. Simeon didn't choose him. Mary and Joseph didn't choose him. No other person or entity in the universe chose him. He's the Lord's Christ. But now look at verse 30, because Simeon refers to him as your salvation. Your salvation. And it gives us a little greater understanding as to what is happening and who this child is. This is not a man-invented story or plan of rescue. We might recognize our need as a human race to be rescued, and, and I think everybody feels the, the pain of this moment. 
the fear, the frustration, the, all kinds of doubts. And, you know, are we going to are, are we going to burn ourselves up through carbon emissions? Or are we going to wreck the environment or destroy one another through war? And there's always a call amongst humanity for peace, peace accords, peace efforts, peace legislation. But we just haven't been able to do it. God himself knows that we need rescue. God himself has identified our rescue. It's not just a plan, it's a person. It reminded me of, of the, the series that we just completed not long ago through the book of Romans. It took us some time to get there, but if you remember how Paul opened that gospel or that letter to the Romans about the gospel of God, he said. Listen to his words once again. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. It is God's salvation. It is God's gospel. This is God's plan for rescue. But then look at the phrase that follows. Simeon notes, this is not only God's salvation, but it is a salvation, a person that God himself has prepared in the presence of all peoples. Um, now that little term prepared uh, is intriguing. It has the idea, as several authors have noted, it's not talking about the process of preparation. That's what we're going through right now to get ready for Christmas, right? And even... Some of you, when I bring it up, you'll think, oh man, we still have gifts to get and there's so-and-so to get with and we've got that office party at the end of the week and you're thinking about a process. What really is in view here that Simeon is highlighting is that God has actually set up or established this figure, this child, on a public platform. So the term staged may be a little more specific. Now, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, at this moment, do you know that at this moment, the estimates are that almost 1.2 billion people are watching a big event. It's the World Cup. I hope nobody's watching it right now. <laughs> and if the person next to you you know, is super engaged on their smartphone or device right now, and you look down and, you're, and it looks like they're kicking a ball around a field, just snatch that phone and toss it up here to me right now. Like, uh, I may or may not catch the phone, but I'll, I'll keep it right here. You know, a little perspective. I, I know Americans love their, their football, but do you know that even the Super Bowl is only viewed by, what, what did I see? Uh, I think the figure was 112 million people or 114 million this last year. But just imagine, like 1.2 billion people watching this event that Qatar has staged. And I know there have been reports all along about the things they did or things they didn't get done before this, this big event, but it, it has captured the attention of one-seventh of humanity. 
That's pretty impressive, isn't it? But Simeon is saying that God Almighty from eternity past has been, has been planning an event and now it's arrived. God himself is staging something for all the world to see, to know, to experience. And what is this that God is staging? What, what is this salvation that he has staged in the presence of all peoples. And now he breaks it down lest, lest we miss this at all. First of all, he says, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And then he's going to speak of Israel in just a moment. And those are the basic two ethnic categories uh, that the Bible speaks in terms of. Israel, because they were initially the, the nation that God chose to bless in a very special way. And then through time, God reveals that his blessings and his salvation were not just given for the nation of Israel, but for all peoples and Gentiles would be everybody else who's non-Jewish. Well, a light for revelation to the Gentiles is what Simeon proclaims. We know that Jesus Christ is God's light to a sin-darkened world. In his gospel, the apostle John wrote in chapter 1, verse 4 of this Christ, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It may seem like it at this moment. It may seem that there's still a great deal of darkness that is impenetrable even to the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, but God's, God's purpose from long ago has been to penetrate the darkness with the light of Christ and to bring people through Christ, through that work of salvation, into a right relationship with him. And Simeon uses the term a revelation. That is, God is uncovering something here. God is communicating something very powerful. It made me think of the Old Testament prophecies, and perhaps Simeon had some of these in his heart as well. But in Isaiah 42, verse 6, and Isaiah 49, verse 6, you read almost the same uh, uh, prophecy, but let me just summarize it with a brief quotation. God says, it is too light a thing that you should, that not, not light like we're talking about, a light for revelation, but it's just lightweight. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That is the Lord's Christ, the, the Lord's salvation as he's being revealed to us here through Simeon is too great to be limited to one nation like Israel in his benefit. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb are too powerful in their effect to be limited to a few thousand or even a few million Israelites. As Simeon holds the Christ child in his arms, he sees what God is doing and he blesses the Most High because he is shining the light of Messiah across the world. How powerful this light is. And I was thinking it's so powerful that even as it was shining into Simeon's world at that particular moment and would spread from Israel throughout the nations of the earth in just a few decades, it continues to shine brightly. And here we are 2,000 years later in a, in a city called Riverton, just outside of a big city called Salt Lake City, and the light shines in saving power. God's salvation is great. Look at the next phrase. Because God is actually restoring his glory to Israel. Simeon says it's not only a light of, of revelation for the Gentiles, 
but it is also given for glory to your people Israel. Now, the term glory is used in several different ways in the scriptures. It can actually refer to bright light that shines. It's what happened, again, over the hills when the shepherds saw the angelic host. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And that glory is a holy light. It's an exposing light. And certainly that is one aspect of glory. And so there are scriptures where even the visible glory of God is described as a rainbow, as it was revealed to Ezekiel, for instance. And some have described that as the rainbow-like display of God's many, many, many perfections. But when, I want to take you back to the temple because keep in mind, that's, that's where Simeon is seeing the Christ child. And if you think back to when Solomon first built the temple and it was dedicated, the, the record in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3, is that the presence of God descended and was visible. The Shekinah glory, if you will. The visible radiance of God where he made his presence known and he blessed the people. And though it was typically veiled within the Holy of Holies, they knew God is in our midst. His glory is here. But as Israel persisted in its sin in the coming years, generation after generation, and and they forsook the law of God and the ways that he had called them to, there came a point where God withdrew his glory from the temple. And Ezekiel describes seeing that horrific moment when the glory of the Lord departs from the temple itself. Israel's low point came Perhaps when Antiochus Epiphanes built an altar to Zeus on top of the altar of burnt offerings and sacrificed a pig on it in 167 BC. There was no glory in that temple. But now the glory of Israel is returning and not in a visible Shekinah. The glory of the Lord is appearing and not in fire from heaven. The glory appears in the baby. The Christ is Israel's glory. Again, the Apostle John captures that in the opening chapter of his gospel. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see how glory and the gospel go together The incarnation of all that God is, this child is God in flesh, but he will also bring a message of rescue and deliverance, of hope, of forgiveness, of atonement. Glory is returning to Israel in this child. Now note, if you will, in verse 33, the response of his father and mother. It's instructive for us. They marvel. They're just in awe. Now keep in mind that they have both received very specific revelation from God about this child. And and in Matthew 1, it's recorded that when Joseph was wrestling with, how how can my betrothed one be, be expecting a child? Like, who's the father? Where did this baby come from? Well, God sends his angelic messenger to Joseph and assures him, do not fear, he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then we read back in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 33, where, again, God sends angelic messenger to Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He 
will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now, those are powerful words of truth. But when you look at them, it does seem, it would be reasonable that Joseph and Mary had just concluded like, this is a Jewish thing. And and what an exciting thing if that had even been the limit of it. But now Simeon prophesies in a way where they realize this child is not simply gonna be the the great son of David who returns Israel to its national glory. This child has been appointed by God to bring salvation to the world. They marvel. I pause for a minute and I wonder if you personally marvel at this powerful truth. Some of you have known it so long that it just kind of frankly seems a matter of routine. Oh, ask God to to give you kind of a a, a fresh vision, a new experience of this powerful truth because God never intended for this to become old and routine for us. And some of you have walked with the Lord long enough and through very difficult circumstances where you not only love hearing this old truth repeated, but you never tire of the sense of, of rejuvenation that it brings your heart to think upon this child and all that he is. And all that God has purposed, that's exactly what God intends this good news to do. He's a light for the Gentiles. He's the glory of Israel, and he is the one who is to be marveled at. Now, let's return to the text, though, and look at verse 34 with me, if you will, please. Simeon has actually been blessing the Lord. This is proclamation of truth, but it's also a form of praise. It's one of the things about, and and I would say it really does fall into the broader category of prophetic ministry. Simeon is is speaking and and serving much the way the Old Testament prophets did. So in the middle of this proclamation, though, about the greatness of God and the greatness of, of God's plan, now he begins to speak very specifically. And notice, if you will, in verse 34, it says, Simeon blessed them, that is, the parents. And he doesn't, I, I don't think he's actually giving us the content of that blessing. And some have suspected that, that perhaps... Uh, he used something like Aaron's blessing, which is recorded back in number six, you know, the famous priestly uh, blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There are other blessings in the Old Testament, and we don't know exactly what the blessing was, but then Simeon uses this word, behold. And he does seem to direct this to Mary in particular, And and it's as if he is saying, Mary, mark this well. Note this. That's what the word behold means. Mark this well. And and here it comes. This child is appointed. And he reveals that there is a divine appointment of this child. Again, this is the Lord's Christ. This is God's salvation. This is God's appointment. There's a divine appointment ordination or even destiny um, that is about to be revealed. There's authority in this. Uh, This is a conclusive appointment. And what has he been appointed for? Well, notice there's a pair given for the fall and rising of many. The falling and rising actually represent two different responses to Christ. This is what Isaiah predicted long before. Isaiah 8, 14. 
he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel and trap a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And if you were to read through more prophecies, both in Isaiah and other places, you would find that there are two responses that are typically paired together. For some people, this Christ will be a sanctuary, and for others, a stone over which they stumble. It's what we saw again last year when we came through Romans 9. And, and if you would look back to that particular portion, you would see that Paul actually quoted Isaiah 28, 16 when he's describing Israel's response. In his day and age, many of his own people had no care whatsoever for Messiah, no thought in their head that they should consider who Jesus Christ was, what he had done through his death on the cross and what his resurrection from the tomb meant for them. They were actually stumbling over the gospel. And in Romans 8, or Romans 9, verse 32, Paul says, why is this? Because they do not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. As it is written, behold, and this is God, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But then a turn, and God says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And there you see it again, the two responses, one of faith and one of rejection. One that says, I believe he is God's salvation. Well, then he, becomes, he actually becomes like a foundation that you can stand on. You'll never be ashamed for putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But for others who say, no, I don't believe in this Christ. I don't believe he is my savior. Well, he becomes a stumbling stone. He's been appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. You put it in its context, and here is Simeon holding a 40-day-old baby. We have little babies here, even in the room, or we, we did. There, I suppose there are others around here. But, I mean, just hold one of them and think in terms of, uh, of how sweet and innocent they are. And, and no one would, would take a, a baby in their arms here and say, well, you know, this child's been appointed for some really hard things. But that's what Simeon is saying, because this child is unique. And then he goes on to say, look at the text again, and for a sign, a divine sign. You know, that's the term that is used all through the Gospels for the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus performed, and then his apostles and other disciples as well. And when that term is used in those contexts, those, those signs, those wonders and miracles and such are always verifying divine authority, whether with Christ himself or the apostles or the early church. And John even writes in his gospel, I've been alluding to that a lot through the morning, but there's a reason for that. In John 2, where Jesus performed his first miracle in his adulthood, in the years of his earthly ministry, he turned water into wine. And in John 2, verse 11, the apostle gives us perspective and says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see, the sign is given to say, I am who I, who I declare myself to be. Believe in me. And they responded in the way that God intended. But not everybody who saw the miracles was willing to believe. Some, despite the signs, said no, 
harden themselves to it. We don't like the way this is going. We, we, we agree that something supernatural is going on here, and though we can't explain that, we still are unwilling to accept the claims and call of Christ. You come to the end of John's gospel, and when he summarizes, now he, he handpicked a number of signs. He highlights about seven of them um, in his gospel. There were many, many more that Jesus performed. But when he comes to the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Those individual signs, really, in one sense, are an indication of what Simeon is saying, that Jesus himself is God's sign to the nations. I'm always intrigued when people say things like, well, if there really is a God, why doesn't he reveal himself? Well, for starters, we can look at creation. Just, just look east toward the Wasatch Mountains and then drive up one of those canyons. See the, see the fossil record. Look under a microscope at some of the spectacular life that is too small and intricate for these eyes to see, but with the, with the help of, of magnifiers, you, you can see all kinds of stuff, stuff that, frankly, I'm glad we can't see with these eyes. There's scary stuff, you know, crawling around in the unseen world, but all of that testifies. There's a great God. I mean, he really has, but more than creation, God himself entered the world he became what you and I are. The creator became one with his creation. Lived as you and I live. John says, made his dwelling among us. Just set up camp right alongside us. I, I understand what is often at the heart of people saying, well, if, if God is there, why doesn't he reveal us? But I, I want to just pause for a second and say, oh, dear friend, don't miss the fact that he has, and powerfully so. And I know there are alternative interpretations of the story of Jesus, and some would even say, well, I'm not sure he really existed. Oh, you're in a, you're in a really small minority because even people who aren't followers of Jesus when we, in terms of faith acknowledge there's a historical figure back there that we gotta admit lived and, and taught and did a lot of things. He actually has revealed himself. Maybe what we're saying sometimes is that God hasn't revealed himself in the way I think he ought to or the way I, I want him to. But this God didn't enter the world to kind of fill your little wish list of what a divinity should be like. He came to reveal himself as he is. And the glory of, of this child is that he will not only make his dwelling among human beings, but he will live and speak and teach and work and serve and sleep and, and do all the ordinary things that we do as God so that we might know God as he is. And even at the end of his life, I, this is not in my notes, but it's coming to me right now. I'm thinking of that sweet conversation where he's telling the disciples, I'm gonna go away. And, and the disciples are like, oh, Lord, we don't, we don't know the way. And, and Jesus says, have you been with me this long and, and you don't know the way? Show us the Father and we will believe. There's all kinds of things going on there. And then he even says, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the whole point of the incarnation. God wants you to know what he's like. And he's full of love and he's full of mercy and he's full of compassion and he's full of truth. And he'll confront your sin head on. 
but he doesn't just leave you kind of in a wreck and ruin as he confronts you. He calls you out of that sin to repent and believe and receive the forgiveness. And he died on the cross and rose from the grave to verify all of this. This is God's salvation. This is God's sign. Look at verse 34. This is sobering. He is God's sign, but he is a sign that is opposed. There's an antagonism here to this child. Again, it's hard to fathom when he is but 40 or 41 days old, but Simeon says he is God's sign, but he will be opposed. And what opposition the Lord Jesus faced, and even to this day faces in the life of Christ, despite the hundreds of miracles he performed, despite his thousands of words of wisdom and, and gospel preaching, despite the freedom he brought to those who were possessed and oppressed by demonic entities and forces of darkness, despite the blessing he brought to ordinary people by feeding them when they were hungry, there was a strong segment of the population that hated him to the point that they plotted his death and carried it out. The antagonism and opposition that Simeon speaks of here culminated in his scourging and crucifixion about 30, 33 years later. And that opposition was captured in, in three phrases that I'll highlight. There were more, but one of those was this. We have no king but Caesar. You just compare the capacity and ability of Jesus Christ to any other king on human earth. You're a fool to choose anyone other than Jesus. Could Caesar work a miracle? Did Caesar have the power to forgive sins? Did Caesar come to establish a rule of peace? There's a second phrase that emerges on that grim day. Give us Barabbas. We'd rather have a killer released into our midst than for Christ to continue. And the third phrase, and the most stunning of them all is, crucify him. It's not a polite opposition. It's a raging, murderous rebellion that says, I will not have a king like him rule my life. I will not surrender and submit my autonomy to my creator. I will not repent of my sins. I will not believe. He is God's sign, glorious and spectacular, but almost unbelievably, he will be opposed. Friend, do you oppose the Christ on this day? Do you hear the Christmas story and say to yourself, oh, isn't that sweet? Not for me. And you might try to paste a polite veneer over it, but if your heart were to be known as it truly is, there would be a deep and ugly antagonism toward Jesus that is revealed. And that's exactly where Simeon goes because the next phrase in verse 35, this sign is given and will be opposed. Look at this, so that. And it brings us to the final point here. And it actually brings us to the authority of this child. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And again, he's using terminology that there's gonna be this public revelation and that opposition to Jesus in and of itself is a revelation of what truly lies in the hearts of many. But there is also coming a day when it will all be revealed. Presently, the opposition to Christ can take many forms. You see it in the Gospels. You see it even in the form of 
of, I would call it, philosophical disillusionment. You see an evidence of that in John 6, after Jesus has been teaching some really strong truth concerning who he is. And even he, he says in John 6, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You know what? That offended a lot of people in disillusionment, and, and they walked away. That's a form of opposition. You see it in the disappointment of the rich young man who's recorded in Mark 10, 17, who heard Jesus say, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What an invitation. I mean, don't, we all like to think that if we were the rich young man, we, we would go sell it all, give it away and return to follow Jesus. But you know, that young man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And he looked at Jesus and he looked at his possessions and said, I choose these. Opposition can take the form of a disappointment like the rich man. It can also take the form of jealousy that you see in the scribes and Pharisees. They felt jealous as Jesus performed miracles and taught with such authority that the crowds flocked to him. They were concerned that they were losing their market share and so they began to plot his death in places like John 11. That opposition can express itself in betrayal like Judas who though having walked with Christ and the disciples for three full years saw an opportunity to continue building his personal fortune at Christ's expense and made a deal. I'll give you Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That opposition to Christ can look like the riot outside Pilate's headquarters, which is where we were just a moment ago, and unbelievable words of rebellion and condemnation flow out of the mouths of that crowd. There's more than one way to oppose Christ. And what's happening here is that this opposition itself is part of of God's purpose for the child because it will reveal what is truly in the heart of humanity. My friend, your antagonism toward Jesus says far more about your heart than it does about the uncertainties of his life and ministry. Even the questions that some have about his death and resurrection from the tomb. Jesus is the consolation of those who feel the disappointment and despair of the age. Jesus is the Lord's promised Christ. Jesus is God's salvation from sin. Jesus is the light for revelation to Gentiles so that they should no longer walk in darkness. Jesus is the glory of Israel restored, not just to an earthly temple, but restored to the hearts of people who submit to him in faith. Jesus is God's appointed one. Yes, for the stumbling of some, but also for the rising of many. And I want to return to this thought and end on this particular note, because in the same way that antagonism toward Jesus leads to a catastrophic stumbling, so faith, imperfect faith, struggling faith, but faith nonetheless that is placed in Jesus as God's stone or rock of salvation leads to a mighty rising That term that I skipped over very briefly just has the idea even of a resurrection. And you think through some of the characters and ordinary people that emerge through the Gospels. There is the rising of Nicodemus, a powerful religious teacher in Israel, but whose heart is in the shambles of legalism, so confused that when the Lord of glory stands before him and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's like, what? 
How can I enter my mother's womb and be born again? I mean, how, how confused does he have to be to miss something like that? Yet Jesus reveals it. And in time, Nicodemus will come to believe there is a rising out of the shambles of his religious legalism. There's the rising of the Samaritan woman rising from the destruction of five failed marriages and a live-in boyfriend, desperate for something, some sense of security, some sense of fulfillment, some sense of satisfaction, until she meets Jesus and he raises her from the shambles of her immoral lifestyle. There's the rising of a tax collector named Matthew whom Jesus rescues from the shame and rejection of his dirty, cheating business. There's the rising of Zacchaeus from a life of extortion and greed. There's the rising of Mary Magdalene from a life of terror as seven demons, the Gospels tell us, possess her life and dominate her soul. And there's the rising of those like Bartimaeus from the hopelessness of a physical disability. But when Jesus passes by and then calls that blind man to himself, he's not only healed of his physical infirmity, but he is raised to spiritual life. This is the rising that Jesus offers to all who come to him. Oh, my friend, do not continue to live your life with the delusion that somehow you can save yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot save yourself from the confusion turmoil that lies embedded in your soul. You cannot save yourself from the sin that has long held you bound in its own prison house. There's no amount of self-righteous effort. There's no amount of philosophical learning. There's no amount of of any kind of self-flagellation that will somehow renovate your spirit and transform your soul so that then you are in a position to enter the presence of God. This is God's salvation. Well, as we read through Luke, as quickly as Simeon is introduced to us, he vanishes from God's stage, but the story of the Christ continues. And that's the way it should be. Because the Bible is not ultimately about Adam and Eve, or Mary and Joseph, or Simeon, or Anna, or Paul, or Peter, or John. Just like this life is not about you or me. The grand story is about Christ. But Simeon, praise God, like Eve, leaves us a legacy of gospel faith, of Advent proclamation that points us directly to the Savior. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And as we read in the story, there came a moment where he held that Christ he had longed for in his arms. It's a good moment. Let's pray together. Father, we sing often in this season of the birth of Christ and beautifully and Truthfully so, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Thank you for the ordinary people like Simeon who show us the way of faith. Every one of us could describe our own difficult circumstances that put a great strain and stress on our souls. 
We, like Simeon, know the reality of present distress. Every one of us knows, regardless of our age, that death will come. But thank you that there is a true, eternal peace that is offered. We give you praise, our Lord and our God, for your Christ, for your salvation, for your light, for your glory, for your rescue. Would you settle the hearts of those who are in great turmoil today in Jesus? Would you rescue those who are slaves to their sin, whose habits of thinking, of looking, of lusting, of binging, are secret from all others, but they are known to you, Lord, and your heart breaks over them. Would you move them and cause them to turn to this great Savior today? Would you humble those who are still intent on self-rescue, who continue to believe a delusion that they're strong enough, smart enough, resourceful enough, hardworking enough that they can do it on their own? And I ask, Father, that you would show great kindness and remove from our hearts any opposition that would ultimately cause us to stumble eternally. Oh, Lord God, have mercy on those who are present with us today who do not yet believe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are all of this and so much more. Spirit of God, would you take your word and would you seal it to our hearts? Would you bring about that rising? Let it be the joy of our hearts as we enter this week of Christmas. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.